And away we go. Hello, everybody. Bill Buckmaster in the driver's seat. And on the other side of the glass, Tom Fairbanks uh, with this engineering and producing the show. This normally is the last day of February. Not this year, uh, Tom. We are in a leap year situation. And uh, I knew that my nephew was special. He was born on, on uh, a leap year. Uh, do you know how special it is? How rare is a leap year baby? Every Every four years? <laughs> yeah, but that... Do they that, still call it Sadie Hopkins Day? <laughs> they do? Sadie Hopkins Day. Um, anyway, one in... Here's the chances of a baby being born on leap day. Chances very slim. One in 1,461. Uh, the average baby has a 1 in 365 chance of being born on any given day. So you get, you add in the four years. So there's where, there, that's what you get. Well, I'm guessing that folks that were born on the 29th probably celebrate their birthdays on the 28th on the other yeah, years. Yeah, they do. But then the years that it comes to be the 29th once again, I wonder if that means they have they have a special birthday celebration for those years i um, believe when, they when do. it's the 29th at least from my personal experience with uh, in our family our nephew it is special yeah it's a special celebration anyway uh today is the 28th day of february it's wednesday it's our midweek edition uh our radio program uh proud of the fact that We've now moved into year number 14 with this radio project, uh, which came after 22 years with the TV show, Arizona Illustrated, on Channel 6. So we are in the Green Things Zocalo Village studio. We have five radio stations now under one roof. This one is 1030 KVOI, The Voice, all part of uh, the growing presence of Bustos Media here in Tucson. We have our worldwide live listening of my radio program on my website, buckmastershow.com. Also, that is the place for a ton of content, 13 full years of programs conveniently archived at buckmastershow.com. When we do our telephone interviews, and we'll be doing two of them today. The live line is presented by Rincon Ventures Real Estate and Property Management. Let's go now on the live line to the chairwoman of the five-member Pima County Board of Supervisors, Democrat Adelita Grijalva. Hey, Adelita, how are you doing? Hi, Bill. I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Thank you for asking. I know you've you're kind of getting over a cold, and I do appreciate you not coming into the studio. It's one of the rare yeah, times yeah. I, I say to someone, thank you for not uh, sitting across from me at the table, yeah. uh, even nah. even though it is preferable, of course, to be in studio, because you see the kind of the facial expressions. But uh, we'll get along, uh, as we always uh, do, Adelita Grijalva on the live line. Okay, let's get to the big story. Pima County is about to face a fiscal cliff. Uh, this is a difficult situation uh, concerning the asylum seekers. Let's. Where are we right now with this? So essentially, um, 
we asked finance to look at it, and our county administrator sent us a really long memo basically saying March 31st is the date. We had an item on the agenda last Tuesday just to sort of give her the green light to reach out to all of the vendors that we have and let them know within the 30-day window of cancellation that we won't need their services anymore, and that includes, you know, arranging some of the other um you know, we have some portable showers and portable restrooms. All of those are on leases. So moving all of those things out, we have food service, um, letting, you know, Casalitas inform their staff that there won't be any funding. And it's it's a really incredible undertaking that they've um, that they've been able to to create here, this system that has been created. And what unfortunately is going to happen now is, you know, we had 87,000 encounters in December alone, so in one of the four counties around Arizona. So how that is going to impact us is about a 1,000 people a day that we're not going to be able to help get to their final destination. And so when people keep saying, well, stop taking the money, stop taking the money, well, there isn't any more money to take. <clears throat> and so what will happen is what we've been trying to avoid for five years, which is street releases and people kind of wandering our streets unsure where to go and how what the next step is well uh i know that uh the lone republican on the board uh steve christie every time he's with us on the show he says uh it's our own fault because we've been taking the money what do you say to to your colleague uh, supervisor christie we we have no control over the people that are allowed to come through our border they seek legal asylum the process that that happens at the federal board, federally controlled border. All we're doing is addressing once people are here. So whether we create this mechanism or not, the people are still going to come. And so what will happen now is that we're going to have people that are in these very small communities without the infrastructure support that we have here in Tucson. And, you know, this system that we've created won't exist either. And so you'll have small communities like Lukeville, Nogales, um, small border towns that don't have, you know, the transit system, all of that set up that are going to be wandering, trying to figure out how to get to the airport or how to get to the bus terminal. Um, you know, what maybe they're not um, and, you know, they need shoes, basic needs before they move on, all of those things Casalitas, through the support with Pima County and the city of Tucson, have been able to do, now that won't be happening. And so we'll see what the impact would have been for the last five years, unfortunately, without Pima County in, in a month. Well, uh, since 2019, Pima County has supported over 400,000 people. Um, and that is a lot of the the people who are the volunteers, none of this would have been possible. I'm just wondering what all this is going to look like. Aren't you kind of thinking? I, I am. I am. <laughs> it keeps me up at night trying to think about it. And I'm sure I had a, um, uh, we had a meeting with Meryl Meadow, who what is happening is without this support from the federal government and Pima County taking on this role, the responsibility will fall to our cities. And the city of Tucson being a really, um, you know, a, a spot where uh, CBP has, has indicated that they will be 
driving people and leaving them. So you pass other counties to bring them here to Pima County and to Tucson. They pass other cities to bring them here and to Tucson. Um, I'm not sure if that is still going to be the plan, but um, the responsibility of what happens next, unfortunately, is going to be falling to us regardless because we want to make sure to keep our community safe. There's a whole other um, concern with you know, people who feel it is their individual responsibility to uh, be, you know, um, self-proclaimed border patrol and start asking people for identification. I mean, and that sort of kind of vigilante uh, interactions and that that could happen, that could increase. And we've seen that in some of our uh, neighboring counties and we don't want to see it here. And also, um, as you're well aware, this we went through the whole deal with SB 1070, and then uh, there's another. There's a bill up in the House that's moving forward that has, has is similar, that makes it a state crime to cross the border illegally. And of course, there that's a federal crime. It's a federal crime. I mean, I think that that I my hope would be that our governor would that would be a dead on arrival. That that is that is something that would be automatically vetoed. That is a federal it's a federal law. It doesn't need to also be a state law. So let's get back uh, to this and try to unpack it. Uh, and I know, as you say, it's keeping you up at night, and I think it's keeping up. I'm sure city officials as well. Already, we have a difficult homeless problem in Pima County. And uh, we're trying to work to, you know, solve or, or mitigate that. How does this, the street releases, I mean, Jan Lesher, the Pima County administrator said, has warned that this is homelessness on steroids. Right. Well, if you think about it, it's an additional 1,000 people in our community that don't have any shelter or lodging. How are we going to address that? And financially, neither the county nor the city or any of our other partner cities and counties have the capacity financially to address it. And so this is a a true failure of our federal system in leaving us to sort of hold the bag and figure it out on our own. Um, I'm glad that our president, Biden, is um, going and looking at other border communities. And, you know, one thing when I was interviewed and asked, what would you like, you know, if you could, you know, speak to President Biden, what would you like him to know? To say that the the location that he's looking at now, multiply that by three or four times. And that's what we're going to be dealing with here in Tucson and Pima County. And it's not just our area to be the the entire, along the whole border, right? Correct. Uh. It's along the entire border. And so, you know, it, it, our weather is always something that everyone loves, right? But not in June or July. Mm-hmm. And we've seen an increased number of families crossing over. And so the, our concern is obviously a health-related concern in, in um, thinking about, you know, small children or people that are vulnerable that will be out in, our, in the elements where, you know, Nobody should be in July out direct sunlight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, Tucson it, is very warm, and the, the conditions course. are very, um, very scary. So I'm just wondering, logistically, uh, the border patrol will they will they designate an area where they'll just drop people off, and, and if so, 
uh, could there be volunteers uh, at, at, at that location to perhaps help? Part of the problem, though, is that where would that occur? I don't know. Because that's, I mean, that is that is the big problem, right? Because let's say hypothetically, um, you know, the county continues to allow, Casalita still has a facility attached to um, the juvenile detention center, right, in the back of, of that juvenile detention center. That, that space is still space for Casalitas that has lately been utilized by volunteers. The reason why we moved to larger location is because of the volume. And so obviously what will automatically happen is my assumption is we don't have the transportation. So even if people come to our location, I mean, it will be run entirely by volunteers. Um, and nobody has the, I mean, nobody has the financial uh, capacity to deal with a million dollars a week. I mean, that's essentially what it's been costing. Yeah, I was and just so going to ask if, you, yeah. what what kind of money are we talking about uh, on a daily basis? That was going to be my question, but you just said it's about a million yep. a week. So figure that out. That's that's right. about 200, um, around $200,000 a day. Yes. <laughs> it's incredibly, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. And, and, you know, one of the things that we were hoping for with what we'd heard initially was a bipartisan um, immigration bill really was not very bipartisan and it was dead on arrival um, from some of the people who helped to craft the, the, the bill. So really, this is all very politically motivated, timing it. Um, not, I mean, this is not coincidental at all that it's right around an election season where, you know, the pictures that are going to be circulated and the images that will be circulated are people all over our streets. Yeah. Because I mean, we won't no. have the capacity to do anything else. I mean, if you think about most asylum seekers are here for two days, maybe one to two days. Um, and so we shelter, we get them where they need to go. The vast majority, 98% of them, their sponsors are paying for their travel. Um, the, the county has jumped in when it just made realistically more financial sense. Like, okay, we can continue to house this person until their sponsor can do X, Y, and Z. Or we can just, you know, pay for the transportation in order to expedite travel. And that's essentially what has happened in very few cases. But um, what we're dealing with is just a lack of uh, interest on the part of the federal government to really come up with any kind of comprehensive immigration reform. All right. I, I want to pick up a little bit more on this, but I do want to take the break. Uh, Adelita Grijalva is with us on our live line presented by Rincon Ventures Real Estate and Property Management. Mona's Danish Bakery, home of the Danish Kringle, northeast corner of Swan and Sunrise, doing very well now with their new enhancement. They are serving wine, uh, champagne, and uh, beer. Uh, so you could have a beer with your lunch, or I guess you could have some wine with your lunch as well up at uh, the northeast corner of Swan and Sunrise. Their website's monasdanishbakery.com. And uh, a lot of folks like uh, champagne and orange juice, known as a mimosa in the morning. And you can do that now uh, when you have your breakfast at Mona's. They open at 630 
Tuesday through Sunday. We will take a break right here. It's the Buckmaster Show, midweek edition. We've got some more with the chairwoman of the Pima County Board of Supervisors, Adelita Grijalva, right after this. Family-owned Jam Culinary Concepts and its family of restaurants has you covered for your special event. Jam caters anytime, anywhere, any size group, and any type of cuisine. Vero Amore, authentic Neapolitan pizza, and noble hops. Craft beer and fine fare are synonymous with quality. Call 954-1468 or log on to jamculinaryconcepts.com. Buckmaster Show listeners know that I'm passionate about travel. When I'm ready to take off on a new adventure, my air travel begins and ends at Tucson International Airport. TUS is nonstop for our community and Southern Arizona. So remember, to fly local, fly Tucson. Tucson International is nonstop for Tucson. More at flytucson.com. The Regional Transportation Authority's 20-year plan includes roadway, transit, pedestrian, bicycle, and many other transportation improvements across the region. Pima County voters approved the plan in 2006, and the RTA is finalizing a new 20-year plan for RTA board review and approval to seek public feedback on the draft plan. Sign up at rtanext.com for updates. This is Bill Buckmaster urging my listeners to join me in becoming a member of the Reed Park Zoo, one of America's top zoos and home to more than 300 animals from all over the world. When you become a zoo member, you receive free daytime admission, discounts on special events and education programs, and so much more. Find out more about zoo membership and everything you need to know about your zoo visit. ReedParkZoo.org the nonprofit Tucson Wildlife Center has been helping injured, sick, and orphan wildlife in southern Arizona since 1999. They're dedicated to the rescue, medical care, and rehabilitation of sick, injured, and orphan wildlife with the goal of releasing them back to their natural habitat. Around 5,000 animals a year come to them as they are the only wildlife rescue in southern Arizona. All made possible through donations. They receive no government funding. Please donate at TucsonWildlife.com. For more than a half century, Tucson Gardeners trust Green Things, a family-owned and operated retail and wholesale plant nursery, offering an amazing variety of plants, trees, cacti, pottery, and so much more, all at great prices. The 13-and-a-half-acre site by the Rieto River is also home to the Zocalo Village, specializing in fine Mexican and Latin American imported furniture and art. Green Things open daily at 3384 East River Road and at GreenThingsAZ.com and ZocaloVillage.com. Welcome back. It is the Buckmaster Show in the Green Things, Zocalo Village Studios. We are on KVOI, The Voice. When we do our telephone interviews, and we're doing uh, a couple of telephonic interviews today, uh, that's presented by Rincon Ventures, Real Estate and Property Management. Adelita Grijalva is the chairwoman of the five-member Pima County Board of Supervisors, and we are trying to take a deep dive into the situation here that is developing in Pima County uh, concerning the sheltering of asylum seekers, something that's been going on since 2019. Pima County has supported over 400 
thousand people and have uh, one of the successes uh, Adelita Grahava has been avoiding street releases by federal officials, correct? Yes, it has. That's been the biggest um, success, I think. And it, it, some of the days that, you know, we thought street releases were imminent um, with our partners in Casalitas, we did some pretty amazing Herculean <laughs> efforts to make sure that that didn't happen. And it didn't and hasn't. And now I think with um, this looming forward, you know, we've asked our county administrator to send out communications to all of our count- neighboring counties. We're appealing to our federal partners, all of the legislators that represent our area, saying, you know, this is not our problem, but it will become our problem, and this is really your problem. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things is we're willing to continue to provide this service, but we can't do it in this piecemeal effort where, you know, we get... $5 million, which we appreciate, but if you look at it, that is really for a month, a month and a week. Mm. So um, we can't continue to do it. And if, if we get some assurances that we would have, you know, at least a window of three months, and then that's sort of how we've been functioning, and it's really difficult. And, and a lot of our internal staff, especially with um, emergency management and those systems, have been focused on Casalitas and and funding for this program, and so it's taken them away from some of their other priorities. And if there was ever a regional problem, this is it. This is not. This is not just Jan Lesher talking to the Pima County Board of Supervisors. She's also gone and talked with the Tucson City Council. This is a city county, a regional issue. It really is, and it's not just us. You know, we have Cochise County and Santa Cruz counties that are also going to be dramatically impacted because we won't have the capacity to pick up people and bring them to our to this amazing system that was created because the system won't exist. Uh, I'm still trying to get my head around, and I know you are too, around how it works. I mean, do they have a busload of people and just say, okay, everybody off? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think what CPP is going to do really is try to keep people away from the border. Like once you cross, like how do we facilitate some distance so people are not just like walking across and sort of staying there, which is I think where this whole system started initially. But I'm not sure because we won't be a part of any of it. Right now, technically every person has, is a street release, but then there is some transportation from the county, from the state that brings people from Cochi, Santa Cruz, and Pima, brings them to Casalitas, the Welcome Center on Drexel. Now, we won't, that won't be occurring and there won't be any programming happening there. What if they're dropped like, off? Yep. What if they're dropped off there? The doors are basically going to be not open, right? It, it will be an empty building. Correct. <laughs> It'll be an empty building with locked gates. Hmm. We won't have the capacity to run it, and then the the program, just the building itself, utilities, you know, the showers, the bathrooms, all of that, it's about two over two hundred thousand dollars a month. So it's not a small undertaking, not including any other sheltering, not including food. I mean, it it is a very costly endeavor. 
Yeah. So, yeah. So we're, I mean, we're, once we close the doors, it's not going to be something that will reopen. All right. Well, this is yeah. obviously a, a difficult situation. I've got about no, two and a half minutes left. I'd like your, uh, I didn't know if I would be spending the entire time with you on this, but I think it certainly merits it. Quick thought, Adelita Grijalva, on RTA Next, the Regional Transportation yeah. Program. Uh, is this going to happen or no? I hope it does. I think that we have some really dedicated people that are sitting around the table understanding that this is a regional effort has to continue to be a regional effort, but acknowledging the fact that a majority of the funds are drawn from the city of Tucson. And so there should be consideration and priorities on a percentage of those projects that are going to go into the city of Tucson. And if we can't bring that to the city, then they could decide they don't want to participate. And that would be detrimental to Pima County, because where what, how would we be able to continue to do the roads and infrastructure that we need? We need the city at the table. We need to have people that are motivated by what is in the best interest of all of our community and understand that the city of Tucson is bringing in a, a majority of the revenue and should see a majority of the projects, in my opinion. Well, we're running out of time, aren't we? With we that. are. <laughs> yes. We are. We're in a very short window, and I think that there has to be some understanding that this is this would be devastating for all of our community. And so, you know, the city of Tucson should have the opportunity for weighted um, projects. I mean, they it should it should connect to where the revenue is coming from. And I think that there is some flexibility there on the part of the city of Tucson and also the part of our, our neighbor. We, we have to have, um, we have to have a willingness to be able to work together. But I, you know, as the representative of a district that is majority of it is in the city of Tucson, we need more projects, infrastructure projects that are happening in our communities. Well, this is where the bulk of the traffic happens too, respectfully. Yeah. So, well, it's got to be it should happen there. It's got to be ironed out and it's got to be ironed out very soon. Adelita Grijalva, Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. All right. Buckmaster Show midweek point, midweek edition at the mid show point uh, in our, our daily work here on KVOI. Be right back. Dine in or take out authentic Neapolitan wood-fired pizza at Vero Amore, where every flavorful pizza, pasta, and panini are homemade. Using the finest local and imported ingredients, Vero Amore, Plaza Palomino at Swan and Fort Lowell, and on Dove Mountain in Marana, plus a full catering menu and mobile pizza truck for parties and events. Vero Amore, on the web at veroamorepizza.com. The Friends of Pima Animal Care Center is the nonprofit partner to our Pima County Animal Shelter. We grant critically needed resources to PACC so that it can continue the amazing life-saving progress it has made in recent years. Your generosity helps us find homes for abused, neglected, and abandoned animals at PAC. Learn how you can help at friendsofpacc.org. 
The Green Valley News and Sarita Sun cover two of Arizona's most desirable communities. The newspapers reach more than 75% of the communities each week, with a combined population of more than 50,000. The Green Valley News also publishes a dozen magazines each year, and both newspapers publish up-to-the-minute local news online at gvnews.com. The Green Valley News and Sarita Sun, it's all right here. Hi, this is Irene Coppola, President and CEO of the Better Business Bureau serving Southern Arizona. The BBB sets the standards for marketplace trust by engaging with and educating consumers and businesses. The BBB is the resource to turn to for the objective, unbiased information on businesses offering national and local consumer services online and in person. Learn more about the many services offered by the Better Business Bureau at bbb.org. Whether you've considered an all-inclusive luxury cruise, an expedition adventure, or a relaxing river cruise, come to Bon Voyage Travel's annual showcase on March 3rd at the Hilton El Conquistador. Presentations will be offered throughout the day to provide you a chance to hear more about these travel brands and their exciting offers. Bill Buckmaster and I will be teaming up to present the travel trends of 2024. Visit bvtravel.com for more information on Bon Voyage Travel's free showcase on March 3rd. Family owned and run since 1985, Moe's Gallery and Fine Framing is the gold standard for quality and professionalism for picture framing, custom frame mirrors, art for your walls, and hanging and lighting solutions. Come in for your design session or set it up electronically. Moe's Gallery and Fine Framing, Fort Lowell & Dodge, and now doing e-commerce at moesgallery.com. Welcome back. It is the Buckmaster Show. Bill Buckmaster with you in the driver's seat in the Green Things, Zocalo Village Studios on the campus of Bustos Media in Tucson. Green Things, 3384 East River Road by the Rito River, just west of the Brandy Fenton Park. Perfect time of year with spring coming to go by Green Things and get your garden in tip-top shape for uh, the spring season. And we're having a really beautiful, I think, kind of late winter. And uh, it sort of feels like early spring here in Tucson. Greenthingsaz.com is the website. They're open daily in their 53rd year of business. While you're there, stop by their sister business, Zocalo Village, all that wonderful imported merchandise, including a fantastic selection of Talavera Pottery. Our live line is presented by Rincon Ventures, real estate and property management, sponsoring our telephone interviews. It is book festival time again in Tucson, the Tucson Festival of Books, sponsored by the Arizona Daily Star and the University of Arizona. The festival has lined up more than 300 presenting authors, 300 plus panels, almost 300 exhibitors, so it's a big deal. More than 130,000 people are expected to attend. Uh, That's going to be the weekend uh, of March 9th and 10th, so a week from this weekend on the University of Arizona campus. The free festival has now become the third largest book event in the country and the largest nonprofit book festival in the country. I'll be taking part doing a one-on-one interview with Luke 
Russert, the son of famed Meet the Press host, the late Tim Russert. I'll be doing that panel on Sunday morning. You can check it out, uh, the exact location and and time, because the Arizona Daily Star this weekend will have a 64-page uh, guide to the book festival. I think it's going to be in Sunday's paper. One of the many writers uh, who will be taking part is Deanne Stillman, who is a widely published, critically acclaimed writer and former Tucsonan. Her books include 29 Palms, a Los Angeles Times bestseller, which Hunter Thompson called a strange and brilliant story by an important American writer. Another of Deanne's books, Desert Reckoning, based on a Rolling Stone piece and a Southwest Book of the Year. And her latest book is titled American Confidential, uh, which Air Mail Weekly has noted as dazzling and evocative prose. That book is about Lee Harvey Oswald and his mother and how together they formed an invertent conspiracy of one that um, was locked in the pursuit of fame. And, of course, it all erupted November 22nd, 1963. Deanne joins us now on the live line. Hey, Deanne, good uh, catching up with you again. We did an interview or two with you uh, during my time on uh, Arizona Illustrated on the TV show. Good to have you back now on my radio show. Thanks a lot, Bill. It's really great to have this reunion, and I remember those interviews fondly. You know, uh, how did you come to this this story? Uh, this is material, obviously. There's been a lot on Lee Harvey Oswald and the JFK assassination. Uh, what brought you to this, this story? Well, there are a couple of things. Um, first of all, I've been thinking about it for a long time, and I've read an awful lot on the subject. And yes, there, there are dozens of books out there and, you know, countless articles, and, and there have been many investigations. But um, it occurred to me that with um, the ongoing plague of gun violence in the country and various mass shooters having cited Oswald in their writings and, and keeping that famous picture of him with his rifle, po- posing with his rifle in his Dallas backyard, um, they, that that photo ha- seems to have influenced many of them. So I, ju- I started thinking about how uh, the the shots fired in Dallas that day on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, are still ricocheting in the um, malls and classrooms of today. And I wanted to go back and take a look at Oswald's family dynamics because that's something that hasn't been explored in in most of the books written about Oswald. I mean, people tend to focus on forensics and, um, you know, conspiracy theories and was Oswald a patsy or, uh, you know, were there, were there five shooters or a dozen shooters and, and so on and so forth. Um, but regardless of those, um, you know, those investigations, I just, I really wanted to take a look at Oswald family dynamics and, find out exactly how, what was going on, uh, you know, in his upbringing. There were so many parallels that I had read about over the years to the, to the lives of the shooters that we read about today. So that really kind of was on my mind for a long time. 
And then there was one more thing. My books are generally place-based stories about the American condition, and they're all set in the real and or mythological Wild West. And I had found out so many things about Oswald pointing to his his um, living inside this myth of the Wild West, and I, I wanted to take a look at how that played out in, in the JFK assassination. And, for instance, here's one example. On the night before the JFK assassination, Oswald was whistling the theme song from the movie High Noon. Oh, my goodness. Oh. I know. Uh, um, let's talk a little bit about Lee Harvey Oswald's mother, Marguerite. I guess she was obsessed with fame and recognition, and she kind of passed on those beliefs uh, to her son. Well, she really felt that she counted for nothing. I mean, she grew up during the Depression and, and held a series of of menial jobs throughout her life. She was a high school dropout and then went on to to work as a secretary, a babysitter, an insurance peddler, um, selling notions out of her living room. And I mean, at one point she was a she worked for the welcome wagon in Fort Worth. And um, so, you know, in a lot of ways, she was kind of stranded in the working class. And, you know, she had legitimate grapes on that front. But but her temperament, you know, went way beyond that. I mean, she felt persecuted. She always blamed others for her problems. She um, was often asking for favors and never repaid them. And she just kind of felt that the world owed her a living. And she passed on this martyr complex to Lee, who, whenever he was in trouble during his boyhood, for instance, at school, whenever he was called out for any infraction or bullying or anything, he would kind of roll out this very American mantra, which is, it's a free country and I can do what I want. And that's the kind of thing that he had picked up from his mother um, this idea that that we can do what we want and and, and there's nothing to stop us and and um, indeed after he was arrested for the JFK assassination one of the first things he said was I know my rights I want want to call my lawyer hmm. which of course perfectly perfectly legitimate but but you know any we all have those rights but to resort immediately to I know my rights when in trouble for killing the president is, um, you know, it was he never once uttered remorse like, gee, this is awful. I mean, regardless of whether or not you think he's guilty, this is terrible. Something, I feel bad. Something has had this awful thing has happened, but I didn't do it. Um, after Lee himself was killed, this was a couple of days after the assassin, assassination by a fellow named Jack Ruby, uh, Lee's own mother, Marguerite, proclaimed that her son was a patsy and started describing him as a martyr and then went on to say that if, in fact, her son was guilty, that he should be buried in Arlington National Cemetery like JFK oh. because, he was a na- because he was a national hero. Oh, my goodness. Um, I know. So it, there, do you see how this? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's crazy. Uh, Deanne yeah. Stillman, stick around. Uh, we've got another 10 minute or so segment with you. The book is okay. American Confidential. 
uh, uncovering the bizarre story of Lee Harvey Oswald and his mother. Uh, Deanne will be prominently featured at the Tucson Festival of Books, uh, which is coming up a week from this weekend at the University of Arizona. Let's take a break right here. More with uh, Deanne Stillman right after this. Noble Hops is Tucson's original gastropub, serving an ever-changing menu of craft beer and fine fare. Savor the majestic mountain views from the perfect for any season spacious patio at West Lambert Lane in North La Cañada Drive in Oro Valley. Order in or take out at Noble Hops, a pub for foodies. On the web at noblehops.com. The Regional Transportation Authority plan is funded by a voter-approved half-cent sales tax. The RTA is the largest annual funder of regional transportation improvements in the region, averaging more than $100 million in tax revenue each year. The RTA is preparing a new 20-year plan for public review prior to a May 2025 election. Sign up at rtanext.com for updates. International Airport, we are non-stop for our community. Our main priorities are providing a safe and secure travel experience and excellent customer service. We're also non-stop for landing prosperity in Southern Arizona by attracting new flights for business travel and family getaways. When your airport thrives, our community thrives. So fly local, fly TUS. Tucson International Airport is non-stop for Tucson. Cushman and Wakefield Picor is Tucson's leading independently owned full-service commercial real estate company. Founded in 1985, Cushman and Wakefield Picor offers leasing, sales, and property management for industrial office, medical, retail, land, and investment properties in Tucson and Sonora, Mexico. Visit our website at picor.com for the latest news from Tucson's commercial real estate sector. That's picor.com. Call us at 748-7100. Are you happy with the news you get? While not all news is good news, you know good reporting when you see it. Check TucsonSentinel.com every day for breaking news and investigative reports. Have your say in the comments. It's all in TucsonSentinel.com, your local, independent, nonprofit news. You can rely on TucsonSentinel.com for solid reporting about immigration, Tucson and Pima politics, everything from the border to baseball. It's independent news without the spin. TucsonSentinel.com. We are watching Tucson. Nestled in the foothills of the Santa Rita Mountains of southeastern Arizona is Equine Voices and Sanctuary. Home to horses and burros that were rescued from neglect, abuse abandonment, and slaughter. Please consider Equine Voices Rescue and Sanctuary with a financial gift of support and estate remembrance. Learn more about our vision and values at equinevoices.org. Welcome back. It is the Buckmaster Show Midweek Edition. We send so many of our listeners uh, from Tucson over to Silver City, New Mexico. Great getaway. Only about a three-hour drive. Pretty area of the land of enchantment. And uh, that elevation of about five to 7,000 feet just makes for gorgeous days and chilly nights. But uh, great weather to go out and hike in the Gila National Wilderness. Their website for... Before you take your trip, probably a good idea, check it out. Visit southwestnewmexico.org for 
lots of information. You'll be very tempted about the many outdoor activities, some great places to stay as well. Coming up is the Tucson Festival of Books. It's a big free event, now the third largest uh, book festival in the country. I remember when this book festival was launched about, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago. Nobody really knew what to expect. It's become a big deal. 130,000 people expected, 300-plus panels, 300-plus presenting authors, and one of those presenting authors is a one-time Tucsonan, Deanne Stillman, a critically acclaimed writer. Her newest book is titled American Confidential, Uncovering the Bizarre Story of Lee Harvey Oswald and His Mother. What a strange family family dynamic there of the Oswald family. And you write, uh, Deanne, in a Washington Monthly piece, got an article that talks about the role of various women in gun violence. This is an interesting area that really hasn't been explored that much. You you include Jesse James's mother, uh, recently convicted uh, Jennifer uh, cr- recently convicted Jennifer Crumley, the mother of uh, uh, a sh- well, you you go ahead and explain it for us. Well, something I explore in my book, and then I amplify in this Washington Monthly piece, is that um, uh, there's well, I let me backtrack for a second. My question is, um, what happens when uh, the person who is probably the most significant figure in your life um, connects her affection with gun violence. Um, I mean, that might sound strange, but that's what's gone on in some of the cases I've looked at. Uh, for instance, Jesse James's mother, Zerelda, often, often made excuses for her violent son, and he was involved in some very bloody incidents and killed a number of people. Um, Ma Barker of the famous Barker gang um, often excused her son's rampages across the Great Plains. And then recently, in the case of Jennifer Crumbly, the mother of the uh, school shooter, Ethan Crumbly in Michigan, who, who was convicted of um, involuntary manslaughter, and she, she had gone on trips to the uh, gun range with her son and posted about about what fun they were having on those uh, adventures. And she was warned by his school counselors even just hours before the mass shooting, this mass shooting at a Michigan high school, that, that he had been um, talking about committing a violent act at school and posting posting violent, violent images on his cell phone. And she um, just ignored them. And we've seen this play out in some other shootings. Um, in the Sandy Hook shooting, for instance, Adam Lanza's mother provided him with guns and often went to the shooting range with him. And again, back to Lee Harvey Oswald's mother, Marguerite, um, she was often making excuses for him whenever he did something, you know, that really demanded uh, treatment and counseling. Um, you know, he... Uh, he was involved in some bullying incidents and had abused a neighbor's toddler, and she just really waved all of this off. 
she didn't provide him with guns like some of these other mothers did with their sons. But by the time he was, by the time he killed JFK, he was psychologically locked and loaded. And then, of course, had acquired his own rifle for that particular act. And there's another thing I get into in my book. I, I describe Oswald as America's first Travis Bickle. Travis, you know, the Robert De Niro. Yeah, the, ta- from the Taxi Driver movie. <laughs> right, exactly. He's played he's the De Niro character who his famous line is, you talking to me as he's waving his gun? You know, he's, a, he's seeking attention. He wants recognition. And that's what Oswald wanted because he and his, and his mother both felt very deeply that they, they didn't matter. And they both wanted to uh, be recognized, you know, as we all do, but we don't, but we all don't <laughs> pick up a gun and start shooting people. And this was the JFK assassination was nothing they planned, but they might as well have. Um, so you, you know, got, the, you got these very, fine. you got these strong mothers. I'm wondering where's the father in all these, in these cases? <laughs> well, in general, um, He's absent yeah. from these violent households. Not all of the time, but often enough, it, it's something that that's quite apparent in, in the story, in some of the stories I've told, and including in Oswald's story. Lee Harvey Oswald's father had died shortly before he was born, and um, he pretty much grew up grew up without a father figure. I mean, his mother had been married a couple of times, and there was one sort of brief interlude. Well, she was, um, I think she was, she was married to a traveling salesman for a year or so. And that was around the time Lee was eight or nine, I think. And he, um, he thrived during that period of time. And even one of his older brothers said that the difference was just palpable. And the father, the stepfather would take the boys on outings and out for ice cream into the movies and, you know, things that dads do. And, 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 um, the older brother had said that if, you know, if there had been a, you know, an enduring father figure in Lee's life, he might not have gone on to engage in, you know, this act of violence that changed the world. It's very clear that you could, the subtext for Oswald's story in a certain way is where's dad. Deanne Stillman with us, uh, famed, uh, critically acclaimed writer and famed. Uh, we'll be doing two panels at the at the Tucson Festival of Books, one about intriguing women um, like the Oswald family dynamics, and then uh, she'll be talking also at a, in a panel about uh, writers talking about writing. But right now let's go to caller Paul, who has a question or comment for Deanne Stillman. Go ahead, Paul. Uh, yeah, thank you. I have read some books that say that his, uh, his time in Russia uh, affected him mentally and politically also. Have you talked about all of his time that he spent in communist countries? Thank you, Paul. Go thank ahead, Deanne. Oh, sure, Bill. Uh, yeah, thanks for that question, Paul. I do get into it in my book. Um, I think that a primary reason he went to Russia was kind of to to uh, get away from his mother. I mean, he just they had this real love hate relationship, and and she was just extremely um, 
demanding and withholding in private, although came to his defense in public, as I've said, but um, he wanted to put some distance between between the you know him and his mother and um because at that time uh Russia was kind of known as a worker's paradise, and he felt persecuted as a worker, and he felt that you know his mother wasn't given her due as this wage slave worker, and I think that that was also part of the appeal for for him. There was the distance and the fact that he would be living in a worker's paradise, so-called, in Russia. And then what happened when he got there was there were a lot of rules that he didn't really like, you know, like you could, you had to, like, request permission to do all sorts of things, and you could only go to a dance, dances, for instance, at, at certain times, and you were closely monitored. And it was not this worker's paradise that, uh, you know, the Soviet Union had proclaimed. And... um he did find himself a Russian wife when he was there, and and he when he returned to the U.S. with her um, in uh, I think it was 1960 or 61. He was that was kind of we was hoping that it would gain him the respect and recognition for actually having accomplished something in his life. He um, <clears throat> but that okay. didn't happen. Deanne. Yeah. We're out of time. Deanne Stillman, American Confidential, is her latest book uncovering the bizarre story of Lee Harvey Oswald and his mother. Deanne will be uh, up at the in Tempe on March the 12th at a book signing at the Changing Hands bookstore, and she's doing uh, taking part in two panels at the Tucson Festival of Books. Uh, both the panels uh, will be a Sunday afternoon March 10th at the University of Arizona, and you can uh, check it out. Uh, the Arizona Daily Star will have the full program, a 64-page program, this Sunday in the paper, and you can find out all the details about uh, where Deanne Stillman will be appearing. Deanne, out of time. Thank you very much. Really interesting stuff. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Bill. Great speaking with you, as always. Thank you very much. And on behalf of Deanne, I'm Bill, and Tom's on the other side of the glass. We all wish everybody well.